It's press week for Confect magazine at Midori House and over on Dufour Strasser in Zurich. And while the quarterly dash for the printers is all-encompassing, this show has given me pause to go back to the essence of what Confect is all about. Craft, things made well, food and a sense of adventure and discovery. So I've put down my editor's pen to muse on the draw of two ancient materials, glass and marble, with two brilliant women who are specialists in both. Then we're off to a Roman market to contemplate the value of seasonal produce, that sense of what's growing around us that I feel anchors us to weather the soil and the moment in a globalised, digitalised world that promises infinite choice but can often leave us spinning. Then we'll meet lowing donkeys with some new fangled farmers in Ibiza and of course laugh, reminisce and catch up over the airways with my colleagues in Zurich. So before I go back to proofs, cover lines and fine-tuning the upcoming issue, it's time to take a breath. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm your host Sophie Grove and this is Confect Corner. I think that's something that Let's talk about Romans, and I think Italians in general are quite good at the sort of ritual of eating. You know, it's not just what you eat, but it's how you eat it. I think we're all getting very tired of throwaway things, throwaway culture, throwaway objects. And, you know, we want things that are going to last and going to have stories to carry on with them. I don't know if it's art, it's just to create something. Yeah, creating, for me, a little paradise. Welcome to the fourth episode of Confect Corner. Each month I'm joined by Gillian Tobias and Confect Style Director Marcella Pallack, who are both in our Zurich studio. Welcome. Hey Sophie, Hello. I love to be with you in Hello. London, yet here I am again in Switzerland. Well, lucky you is all I can say. Yeah, it's, it's very intense in the office. Uh, we're putting Confect three to to bed this week and so it's all go upstairs and Marcella and I have been ping-ponging back and forth with various different things it's nice to chat to you finally Marcella yes so exciting always when you get everything together I know it's stressful but uh but it is an exciting time up in the up in the newsroom it's so interesting to see how things transform from ideas to shoots and then into a magazine they somehow morph it's just (laughs) there's something very creative about it and and very satisfying despite a few late nights which we all know yeah (laughs) part of the process but um every episode we start by discussing something that has caught our eye whether it's a new shop or an exciting brand or a bottle of wine we enjoyed with friends over dinner last week marcella um perhaps we can start with you Yeah, just coming back from Marbella, where we had one of our fashion shoots. It started when I arrived at the Zurich airport already by uh, during check-in. I observed that uh, people are probably dressing up a little bit more than usual when they are traveling. And it continued when I arrived at the Marbella Beach Club Hotel. People were really dressing up for dinners for lunches, for breakfast. And I must say, I like that. I like that a lot. To watch the people, they're like long kaftans, gowns, jewelries, nice shoes, not only like the women's, also men's and kids and everything. All families were really dressed up. The thrill of getting out again and being seen. I think it's so exciting. But also it possibly is a sort of respect for travel because I think we all 
felt that it was a travel with an excuse to sort of just kick back a bit because we'd done it so often and we were a bit blasé. But now it's sort of venerating travel. We haven't had a chance to do this thing. Why not dress up to go to the airport? Well, exactly. And when you look at the photographs of, you know, the jet set travel age where people, you know, it was something special. Not everyone could could fly. And so when they did, it was an occasion and they dressed up for it. And so any of the photographs you see, the style as they, you know, walk up the staircase to the plane is gorgeous. Gives also like respect to the country or traveling and to your personal travel. It gives just the kind of dignity and style. And I think the only effort that it needs, it's a little bit bigger suitcase you have to take, and that's all. And it makes your journey, like, more precious. Gillian, tell me what you've discovered over the past week or so. Well, my retail hasn't been fashion, but strangely enough, it's been... My favourite bookshop, which you know well, Sophie Dance in Marylebone, and I just couldn't resist uh, going back in there. It's like a temple. And, and the beauty of it is there, you just look at their tables of recommendations and you pick a book by its cover. So I basically picked a book by its cover, and it is heavenly. It's um, by Edmund Duval, one of my favourite authors. He's author of Hair with the Amber Eyes, which I think was one of my all-time favourite books. The book is called Letters to Commando, and it's... An incredible sort of, in a way, memoir to the past based on a real person in a real house in Paris and his collection that he gifted to Paris. But it's told through imaginary letters. Edmund Duval was fascinated by his family history, again, a history of Jews in France who ended up sadly at a concentration camp, but they were great art collectors. And he found through research, these just receipts and notes and diary entries and all sorts of memorabilia that he got to know this man and he wanted to know more and uncover the kind of tragedy and the beauty of their lives. And he wrote these imaginary letters that kind of span a century. And in between the pages are real photographs of this man and his family and objects. And I have to say, this isn't a book review because I've only just 20 pages in, but it is so heavenly and so touching. So I wanted to share this with you all. Well, thank you. I mean, I know Edmund Vell also for his porcelain and he's an amazing ceramicist, but I think it gives him such an interesting relationship to objects, the way he talks about materiality and things is so original and I think because he makes these beautiful items it gives him a different window on those things. Absolutely and he's so poetic the way he writes about them because objects to him have layers and layers of meaning it's the making but what they represent and where the inspiration comes from and that's with new objects that he creates but he has such respect for objects that have a history, not necessarily a grand history, but a history of the hands that bought it, that cherished it, that passed it on through generations. So really is layers and layers of narratives and storytellings. He's such a poet when he, with words, the way he describes things. Julian, you're going to have to go to the Palais du Camondo <laughs> as it's soon as you get back to Paris. It's on my list. <laughs> 63 Rue Monceau. It exists and that's the beauty of it after you read the books. And you can go through these rooms and these rooms are kind of frozen in time, aren't they? They're, they're frozen in time so you can then experience part of the person and the story and the history. Now, my own show and tell is more of a, an action, dancing. I've been dancing over the weekend <laughs> and I just, I went to a little party and I really had the most 
amazing twirl on the dance floor, which was just so long awaited. And it was so interesting to watch people kind of in their element again. And I felt like a fly on the wall at times because I was completely caught up in it. And it was the alchemy of the dance floor. It's just been so missed. But it's also so weird to watch human beings transform from these like kind of slightly awkward people chatting over dinner and suddenly <laughs> there's this <laughs> sense of self-expression and well, joy. Exactly. Well, we've been internalising so much this past year. So I think turn on the music and uh, give a girl a dance floor. I think the expression must have been amazing, Sophie. It was, and I hope to join you all on the dance floor shortly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to pick our European kind of city but I think maybe even Paris I mean let's just do it in my diary well let's bring in our first guest this week we're starting off today's program by talking about craft and materials in the second issue of Confect we feature a few designers who have carved out niches for themselves by working exclusively with one medium one is a glassware expert while the other is a marble designer To explore their relationship with their chosen material and to talk about their craft industry more generally, I'm joined now by Mary Rose Hahn of Venice's Yali Glass and stoneware designer Suzanne Potago-Parson of Sweden's Public Studio. Mary Rose, Suzanne, great having you here on Confect Corner. I wanted to start by talking to you about the intangible draw of that particular material. I remember speaking to a goldsmith once in Hatton Gardens in London who said he'd always been drawn to gold since he was a child and how there was this sense of destiny about that material and his connection with it. Um, Mary Rose, let's start with you. Did you ever feel something like that with glass and that it was your medium somehow? Well, it really has two beginnings and one is sort of a bit further away when I started to look at glass, but this was more in the context of looking at applied arts in general, very, very interested in furniture, textiles, architecture, but also smaller objects. And in that sort of search, I was then living in London, very much interested in the arts and crafts. I came across glass and uh, somehow it attracted me because of the many qualities it has from transparency to being soft when it's hot and when cooling down, getting a stone like stone, I mean, really hard. So that was my very first point of entry. And then later on, When I moved to Venice uh, just over 10 years ago, it was more glass as, I would say, not all over the world, but in many places in the world, we use glass to contain liquids, drinks or pickles. And if you look back into Roman times, they have been used very early on for perfumes and so on and so forth. And so then came my whole story of making glass to use every day. What you just touched on is very interesting because I think we could tell the story of you know, civilization really through glass and the first window panes and, and the first vessels, like you said, have been so important to us as, as human beings. Does, does that very sort of ancient story compel you to the medium as well? It does, uh, very much so. And actually, this is why I'm so happy to meet Suzanne because The material which I've seen you work with, Suzanne, the marble, these are very ancient pieces coming out of the mountains and stone has been used since the beginning of uh, civilizations, first fire and so on and so forth. And 
there's this sort of link between yeah these very early materials which have you know come across so many wars and civilizations and developments and ups and downs of better and worse time and are still here i've been used with joy as for me as a vessel and for you susanne as i can see tables and beautiful shelves and beautiful containing objects so i think that's quite fascinating Suzanne, maybe I could bring you in here and and get a sense of your relationship to marble because you're a designer and then you've you've really specialised in working with marble. I wondered why and how you were drawn to that rock. I mean, it was a lot more haphazard, actually. I mean, there's, just as you say, Mary Rose, like there's so many things about the material that I love and that the fact of everything falling into place when I started working with it like that archaic aspect of it, the natural, like that you collaborate with this natural material, like it's more a collaboration with like something already existent and something ancient, like really physically ancient, uh, the actual pieces that we're working with. But for me, how it happened was really haphazard back in what is it, like eight, nine years ago, I needed marble for my new studio <laughs> workspace. And I fell in love with this one specific marble and I couldn't get a hold of it in Sweden. So I went on this trip to Greece, where I was from. And I found, again, haphazardly through the internet, they were also surprised, like, how did, did you find us? This family that we are still working with today that I visited, who has a stone yard. So I went there and I stayed. Like, I, I really um, was so drawn to it, but it wasn't planned at all. I just stumbled across marble, in a way, and ended up sticking with it and loving it. I love the way you talk about a collaboration rather than a making process, because there's this sense that you really, I don't know, commune with the marble and you crack open, I don't know, you could probably explain it, but you, you, you're you, in the stone yard and then you sort of almost let the stone speak to you and then devise the design of whatever piece you're making in response to what comes out of, um, you know, when you crack open the rock. And I think that that's quite an amazing approach, really, to the design process. Yeah, I've always found it so much more interested to be limited in that sense, or working, you know, more as design or with design as a, a problem-solving thing rather than you know, solidly working out of my fantasy and copying that fantasy. I love almost the chaotic aspect of being interrupted in my process and something more happening than, you know, something better than my idea. You know, my, my things is something that grow into its form. And you know when it's, you know, everything fall into place, but it's like, like putting a puzzle or something and then coming to a solution, like the final solution, then executing an idea, period, you know? Mary Rose, can I ask you, in contrast to Suzanne, you're working with something very malleable and there's this sort of amazing relationship between the masters on, on Murano in Venice and you as a designer, this sort of almost like a choreography and very intense working conditions in the furnace. I wonder whether you could explain to us how you work with the medium of glass. It's actually a real adventure 
But I wanted just to pick up uh, one point of Suzanne. Uh, you said, enjoy working with limitations. I really like that sentence. I mean, we have that as well in the sense that if we work to design a drinking glass, it has to have certain uh, qualities. It has to sit well in your hand. It has to feel nice in the lips. It has to be able to contain a certain liquid, um, has to have a certain weight. And so I much appreciate that way of working as well. When it comes to working with Murano Masters, it's, uh, it takes a long, long time to become real friends with them in the sense, become sort of buddies. And what is very special, I don't know how it is when you work with marble, but I might have a, a drawing ready or made a model. And it's as if the, the glass blower is an extension of my body. Obviously, I can't do it. I mean, I do all sorts of things with my own hands. I do pottery and I do knitting and I do sewing and my hands are very used to working. And I would always like, oh, I'd like to do it myself, but I can't because I don't have the training. And so the master has to become very close to you. So we have to have something in common, a common language, although we might not speak a lot, but it's more maybe our soul or the way we work, we see the world. And it's only when that is in place that a piece comes out well. And Suzanne, maybe you could tell us a little bit about working with marble. I wonder what you've learned about marble as a material since you started working with it and how your approach to it has actually changed. I mean, it's really a lot, obviously. Uh, <laughs> and even more for Alex, my partner, who does more of the hands-on work, even if it's we collaborate on both ends. He's evolved much more and are closer to the material than me in that sense. Yeah, your partner in business and life, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> we are a family. A family, it's the two of us, yes. But what's interesting is also that it is not marble. It's like every rock from different mountain or different part of that mountain or even each slab has its own personality. It goes, and it's such a fragile material sometimes. Like some marbles are extremely fragile and others are super strong and hard to work, but really durable. Every piece we work with, we have to check. What can we do with you? What do you want? What do you need? Like how much support do you need? Which affects my designs? And also which material goes in different designs? I guess that's the most interesting thing. It's not one material. <laughs> it's every piece is its own. Do you feel that this material has, is your medium? Or do you think, Mary Rose, you definitely mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you work with pottery, you work with embroidery, you have lots of different mediums that you're drawn to. Do you think this is part of your journey and you'll, you'll move on to another one? Or is glass, is this it? Have you found your texture and your medium? It's funny you would ask me this question now because where I sit in my studio, I can see mainly glass because this is really the material that has sort of nurtured my imagination for the last 20 years and for the last 10 years in production. But somehow it also had enriched me in a way. So from blown glass, we moved on to molten glass. So we make now glass furniture, glass tables. We use metal. Because of the lockdown, I was with my whole family in a mountain village in Switzerland. 
during the first and the second lockdown and started working with a local carpenter with wood, with local wood. And we now have uh, two chairs and a stool and we're working on a shelf. And so it's, um, we've worked with ceramics as well a little bit, which I started with one of my sons and it evolves in an incredibly natural way. It's not that I think, oh, I need a new material. It's just suddenly just happening. And what about you, Suzanne? Is this an exclusive relationship? I agree. It's the same for me. I think when you are a creator, you make things in any, you know, no matter where you end up being, like you said, when you're stuck somewhere and you have a carpenter, you work with the carpenter. You're, I mean, apart from my work as a designer, we have our marble workshop. So, I mean, that is and will be a big part of what we do. And for me, it's always therefore easier when I have an idea to test it in marble first, because that's <laughs> the easiest for us right now. But I'm like you, Mary Rose. Like I make so many different things and so many different materials all the time and have been always. So I think the marble work will always be a big part of our company, but... I can't help myself from doing all these other things too. It's just, <laughs> it happens, like you say. Mary Rose and Suzanne, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. And I urge everyone to read about both of your works in our expert section of the latest Confect magazine. Now we hop from those working with raw materials to those working the land and find ourselves on the fertile ground of the Balearic Isle of Ibiza. Spain correspondent and Comfort contributor Liam Aldous has been exploring the island's northern valleys and meeting custodians of the land, both old and new. The disruptive force of tourism severed Ibiza's innate connection to nature and farming. But now, as visitor numbers have suddenly dwindled, more people have moved here and taken root more permanently. As Liam found, many are turning back to the fields to toil new futures inextricably linked to the past. Ibiza has always been a sort of refuge, a beacon for characters who have never really fit in anywhere else. That is just as true today than ever, but this is also an island where things seem to flow and grow in abundance. It's all very simple somehow, but it's very interesting and I have to come to develop a passion really for everything related to nature because as a person who likes to control, I know that there is something I cannot control, which is exactly this. It gives me relief, it gives me a sense of being. Margaret von Korf is speaking to me from Kaskazi, the name for her patch of Ibithenko abundance nestled in a secluded corner of the island's north. Kaskazi is an agroturismo, that's a farmhouse turned rural hotel, and Margaret has been welcoming guests here for decades. Margaret, who once roamed the skies and waterways as a flight and riverboat attendant, is now a seasoned hotelier and farmer and recently opened an on-property restaurant headed by chef David Briartes. Sat on her hotel restaurant's terrace overlooking a grove of olive trees, today Margaret seems firmly rooted to the land. 
When you drive through Ibiza, the island, you see that the stone walls, these beautiful walls, are all around, even in very remote places where nobody lives now. And this reminds you that maybe in ancient times, people on Ibiza were living really everywhere. I find it very remarkable also that Ibiza was a sacred island because there were no wild animals, so the Phoenicians brought here their ancestors to be buried here. This island has such an incredible history from 2,700 years ago when the Phoenicians built a colony here. Maybe this has part to do with this saying that there is this special energy on the island. To me, it makes me feel very grounded here. Strong, entrepreneurial, land-owning women are part of the island's story. Back when most of the island was the dominion of proud farmers or payeses, their sons would inherit the prime agricultural land in the centre, while daughters were given the less arable land around the coast. When the tourists began to arrive in the 60s and 70s and foreigners began inquiring about purchasing real estate with sea views, the table suddenly turned. Vestiges of this fortuitous plot twist can be seen today in the community of female hotel and restaurant owners who had the foresight to invest their property earnings in small businesses. As for the sons, well, many of them abandoned the land to become taxi drivers. You can imagine, we have four hectare land on a hillside and coming from a city, I was born in Barcelona, all of a sudden you have all the possibilities of the world to do something. With the time passing here, living on our grounds, more than ever I have come to see what it means to take all the resources without giving back. Everything made by nature is being copied, made in other ways than natural. So all of a sudden you don't have this feeling of gratitude towards whatever comes from nature. You think everything can be done. You must not forget that real nature cannot be taken away. You have to do something to keep it always going. And it's not that difficult, really. We have our water plants where water is cleaned and reutilized. We have our photovoltaic panels to get the electricity. There's no real waste. Everything is kind of controlled and checked. It's not that easy. Nothing is easy. And who said it would be easy? But I think if you do it to the best of your abilities, you at least have a good feeling about it. It's a privilege having land and it's very satisfying because really it's a lot of effort and a lot of work but you get so much back from it. A short drive away, past a sign that reads flowers and vegetables, I meet Francesca Munizaga under the shade of a Mortimer fig tree. Francesca is another character who has been steadied by the land. Working in the music industry was, uh, yeah, crazy. Like all over the place, always traveling, never enjoying the places. It's never getting to, to know the places. In the throes of 2020, Francesca started her floristry design venture, The Floral Studio, an extension of The Farm, an aptly named orchard and homestead that produces and delivers plenty of fresh produce and is part of a new movement to regenerate the land through farming. I always enjoy flowers inside, it's like to bring joy. So yes, I started with the flowers, little by little, without knowing anything, and just trying. When you start putting their hands in the soil, of course in the beginning it's like everything, you need to do it every day, little by little, but it's just peaceful, you just connect. It's a connection that you create, a moment that you create within you and uh, Mother Earth. Some people don't like this that type of word, but it's true in the end. It's like you come back to your roots. So when you root, it's very important. You have to root before you bloom. 
So you have these moments to just touch the soil, to just be connected. You disconnect of everything. It's a therapy. It's really a therapy. Everybody should try it. For Francesca, there are plenty of life lessons growing out of her garden too. I realize that I, I can be constant. So every day I go there. It's something that I never been in my life. Like normally when the thing was a little bit uh, difficult in my relationships, in my work, I always like turn, go by, even in the country. I don't like this country. I don't, I'm not having fun anymore. Poop, change. Now, since we have the farm and the kids, of course, like we have a responsibility. But also the flowers and all of them are your responsibility. If you don't water them, they die. So I learned that uh, to be constant is good. It's good for you and it's good for them and it's good for the plan and everything. And it's something that now I do it happily and I love it. My farm hopping tour of Ibiza ends with a visit to artist and friend Sandra de Keller, who is a sort of accidental farmer. As we say hello, a big truck arrives, delivering wood which will soon be turned into massive plant boxes for her new exotic plant huerto, or orchard. Hola! Por el culo! Wow, look at this wood. Yeah, this is, this is really good wood, you know? I just have this vision of a paradise garden, that you don't have to walk more than three meters and you ban yourself and pick something up, or from the tree. Maybe that's the answer to the question then, like of the why you're doing this, mm. especially at this time, no? like creating your own paradise garden, like yes. it's an escape, but it's also nurturing and fruitful, if you will. <laughs> We've been living on an, on the edge for more than a year now, and suddenly all the, well, what we took for granted has come crashing down a little. There is this kind of, in some people, this urge to go off the grid and not rely on anyone else. Is that somehow informing your work here? It must somehow, because I'm not the only one. It is, it must have to do something with it, with this whole period, because so many people are doing muertos now, or having their little bancales and growing their own stuff. So I think it must be something subconsciously, a survival, maybe, yeah. Is it a source of joy as well? It's not just coming from a place of anxiety, it's coming from a place of, of love and joy. It's very satisfying, yeah and meditative somehow, you just switch off your mind, just water the plants, look at them, maybe talk to them. <laughs> I don't talk to my plants, that's not true. <laughs> Sandra is already growing eight types of tomatoes, wasabi, Japanese cucumbers and even Hokkaido melons. I talk all the time about vegetables and fruits and everyone is fed up. <laughs> my son cannot listen to it anymore, my mother can't listen to it anymore, no one really cares. Until it's done, I'm sure in the summertime when they're gonna walk around and say, oh, wow, da, 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 or not, I don't know. And that's when you say, sorry, Yeah. you weren't here. <laughs> no, yeah, well, or they pay for every tomato, I don't know, I have to still find a way. <laughs> All jokes aside, Sandra, like Margaret and Francesca before her, is part of a new movement of people drawn back to the land. It is a rediscovery that connects us across time, the earth and its fruit, a source of both peace and nourishment. I'm a little bit of, I guess, an enthusiastic person, sometimes also going to an extreme, like sometimes normally when you are preparing an exhibition or whatever, you're getting in this loop. And I guess the same happened with the vegetables. 
I don't know if it's art, it's just to create something. Yeah, I'm creating a, a little, for me, a little paradise. That was Liam Aldous reporting from Ibiza. Still to come, we're going grocery shopping with food writer Rachel Roddy in Rome. We'll speak to the musician Lou Hayter and designer Alice Canissier about their collaboration. And Fleur MacDonald tells us about a pair of shoes she inherited from her grandmother. You are listening to Confect Corner. Confect Corner is brought to you in association with Edelweiss Air. Edelweiss is Switzerland's leading premium leisure carrier, with an impressive food portfolio to match. So whether you're missing those Mykonos skies or Ibiza nights, why not head there via Zurich? You'll receive the warmest of welcomes and an impeccable in-flight experience. Discover your dream destination. Whether you're gearing up for the Greek islands or mulling the Maldives, craving a hit of Havana or longing for Cancun, head to flyedelweiss.com for direct flights from Zurich to over 70 destinations, including more than 30 around the Mediterranean. With Edelweiss Air, you'll discover the most beautiful side of every destination. Welcome back to Confect Corner. I'm Sophie Grove. Now, despite the stereotypes of easy living and ubiquitous deliciousness, Italian food culture and the industry of writing about it is not always as straightforward as it may seem. Doing it well, that is. Fundamental to this is going to the market or mercato in the morning to survey and select the produce. After having lived in Rome's gastronomic nexus to Staccio for 16 years, food writer Rachel Roddy is probably among the most expert market guides that exist. Relative Rome newcomer of only five years, David Pleasant, met Rachel at the teeming Mercato di Testaccio and discovered the art of preparing artichokes, mused on pecorino versus parmigiano, and talked beans, killer or otherwise. Where do you want to head first? I want to go to Filippo, that, and that's the store that I usually go to. He's, he's interesting. He's halfway in between Rome and Naples on the coast in uh, Minturno, okay. and we've been actually to visit him. He used to, he used to always say, um, oh, this was grown by my sort of brother and my cousin and my brother, to the point which I thought possibly he was fibbing about how many <laughs> brothers he has. But when we went, yes, he is the ninth of nine brothers, the youngest, and they're pretty much all farmers. And he's, now he's mid-60s, as you can see, and he's been coming, he's been working here since he was 14. So he has a lovely stall, and it's mostly his stuff. I mean, clearly, he's not growing bananas <laughs> on the coast, just near Naples. But, but everything else is his, you know, and, and it's a lovely moment because we've got um, broad beans, peas, artichokes, and fresh spring onions. And in Rome, the Romans make this really nice spring vegetable stew called vignarola. I mean, actually, other regions call it other things, but the Romans call it vignarola. And, uh, and it's this braised stew of these four vegetables. And it's a good moment because the sort of peas and beans coincide with the artichokes that are just finishing. And so you can't make it for very long. And I think um, it's a great dish. So there's this kind of interesting moment happening right now. So we're quite lucky to be here at this sort of intersection. So there's still artichokes, but yeah. then there's all these other fresh uh, vegetables coming coming out as well so yeah um, well, it's, well it's green isn't it I mean that I must say that's what surprised me about Rome I think just generally you know when I first came here is it's so green it's the green veg that are the real heroes aren't they loads of broccoli loads of spinach it's a nice time to be at the market 
Let's go to Filippo. Let's go. So we're going to get peas, which do look lovely, and then broad beans in their pods. Yeah. Um, which really, um, I mean, a sort of ancient Roman ingredient. The Roman are quite Romans are quite keen on broad beans, and uh, which they call fave. And you know, there's often a warning sign on stalls warning you that they sell fave because there's an ancient disease called farvism, which is only sort of typical to the Mediterranean countries where they sell broad beans a lot. And um, yeah, some people are incredibly allergic. In fact, a restaurant I go to they have a woman who lives near and when they serve fave she has to sort of take a different different route she can't walk past the restaurant because being near the the podded beans is brings her out in thought so they they look so kind of uh, lovely and uh, innocuous but they're, they're actually very dangerous to they're some lethal. people they're lethal <laughs> <laughs> let's see if you lovely yeah so we're gonna get peas we're gonna get broad beans we're gonna get artichokes filippo's artichokes um they're yeah they're, they're globe artichokes but they're slightly smaller and then we're gonna get some fresh spring onions and those all get braised together you could also put asparagus the asparagus is looking pretty nifty over there but it's an overwhelmingly green stew. it's completely green it's a sort of lovely celebration of the moment in the kitchen ciao filippo ciao come stai <laughs> filippo posso avere un chilo di fave Wow, so you're opening up a pod. Let's taste them. Oh. Wow, that is so sweet. I know. That's almost like a, a blueberry or something. It's 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 like a fruit. Yeah, they are delicious, aren't they? Um but there's a lovely habit in Rome, I think all over Italy, where the first broad beans of the season, you pod them. And eat them with pecorino cheese. It's lovely, and I think it's quite, isn't it? I, I think that's something that let's talk about Romans, and I think Italians in general are quite good at the sort of ritual of eating. You know, it's not just what you eat, but it's how you eat it. Grazie, Filippo. Perfetto. Ciao. Can I ask you about artichokes? Um, very important vegetable in Rome. When is the artichoke season? Because I feel like I. Some people tell me it's kind of very strictly. Uh, early winter but then it kind of goes on and now we're we're at the end of April and it seems that artichokes are still abundant so can you what, can you fill me in on that yeah well, no, it's, it's right to be confusing because it is confusing it's long it's a long season and remember that there's artichokes from all over Italy but then the sort of Rome and this the Cimarola the Apollo um, the Mamole all these Roman globe artichokes they start they start sort of we start seeing them in March um, so February, March, and then they and then they're finishing. Probably you've got a few more weeks now. But I remember Marco this year. He had he's just near Rome, um, with land in Rome actually, and he sort brought his first Romaneschi artichokes a month ago. So we've had those for four weeks, and these are them, and they're beautiful. The thing about these artichokes is, remember, I mean, artichokes like this globe ones. These, I mean, they look like a baby's head, don't they? You know, they're, they're they were developed by Renaissance gardeners. But actually, their ancestors were wild artichokes, which grow all over the globe, and cardoons, those sort of almost dinosaur-like cactus long creatures. And these were developed from those, the ancient Romans, they ate, you know, wild artichokes and cardoons. But then these were developed, and yeah, they're everywhere at this time of year, aren't they? I mean, Romans love them, and they do, they do lots of things with them. I'm going to buy these, I'm going to trim them, and then I'm going to braise them, cut, cut them into slices, and then braise them with the peas and the beans. And those fresh onions those whopping great fresh onions it's a good moment it's a good moment at the markets 
Ciao Marco! Hai fatto tu? Hai fatto tu? Sì, tu fai tutto. Sì. Ah, Marco's giving us a, a fragola, a strawberry. Grazie. Wow. Really nice. Sweet but not too sweet. Yeah, delicious. Sugar and lemon, that makes me so happy. Right, I need to go and get some um, uh, cheese. Let's go and get some cheese. Thanks Marco. Grazie, ciao. Can you tell me a little bit about pecorino? Do you prefer to use it uh, rather than, than parmesan? A pecora is a sheep. So a pecorino is a sheep's milk cheese and there are dozens of them all over Italy. Um, and uh, but pecorino romano is sort of typical to Rome and um, it's an ancient cheese. The ancient Romans made it, you know, they, and it's, um, it's sheep's milk cheese and it's also the rennet is from the sheep's stomach or from artichokes anyway. The ancient Romans made these sheep's cheeses and they rubbed them with salt. So pecorino romano has always been quite strong and salty. When you say cheese in Rome, it is pecorino romano, cacio. It, and so that's the cheese. And so all those sort of classic Roman dishes use pecorino. Although now parmesan, so cow's cheese from the north, is very, very diffused. And actually a lot of classic recipes you see use a mix of pecorino and parmesan, which I think is lovely because pecorino... Yeah. <laughs> well, pecorino is strong. I mean, pecorino is, is sharp. It is, pecorino. yeah. Like if you've got a cut on your tongue, it, it, pecorino will sting it. It's a strong salty cheese. So be, be careful with pecorino is the... <laughs> yeah, beware. Because beware. so many dangerous ingredients. Just imagine if you give someone pecorino and fave, you could, you could kill them. And that was Rachel Roddy, whose new book, An A to Z of Pasta, is published by Penguin this July and available to pre-order now. And Rachel was talking to the wonderful David Pleasant. Gillian, it was interesting to hear Rachel talking about the Italian rituals of eating there. Do you and Marcella have any seasonal rituals that you have when it comes to food? Not so much seasonal rituals, but I just adore market shopping. And it's like a canvas with all the palette of colours. So I'm a real sucker for going somewhere and looking at the pinks of the peaches and the reds of the cherries. And I'm almost styling a, a fruit bowl of a still life in my mind because although the taste is important, it all just looks so beautiful. So I just enjoy the process of picking the produce and the colours. And that's really my, my ritual. Yeah, and I'm exactly this I'm, I'm buying because I never know what I'm really looking for at the markets. I just go there and if I see like beautiful red strawberries, I have to have them. <laughs> then I see some fave and at the end I'm ending up with a big bag with things that don't really match together. But it doesn't matter because everything is so fresh and good. So then it's a green weekend. What about you, Sophie? I ate the most enormous mountain of asparagus um, yesterday. And I have a friend who has an asparagus farm, actually, <laughs> um, near Cambridge. And I just go bananas for asparagus at this time of year. And also artichokes, because I think there's something so beautiful and just majestic vegetables. And I love the process of boiling them and eating them with hollandaise. And I think also, you can read a plate, rather like tea leaves, how someone chucks their artichoke detritus, says a lot about them. <laughs> 
uh, Sophie, so when we're in Paris, not only are we going to go dancing, but we are going to have a lovely lunch and have artichokes together. And then we can uh, interpret it, each other's personalities by looking at how we uh, throw away our uh, artichoke leaves after we've dripped them in vinaigrette or butter. Yes, please. And there's such a nice expression in French, cœur d'artichaut, which means kind of um, fickle-hearted. And, mm. and and almost not fickle necessarily, but just like sensitive <laughs> in love. Um, and I've heard that exclaimed. So there's our French moment, Gillian. Now, our next story is about the art of collaboration. Lou Hayter is a British musician whose career straddles pop and fashion. Since the mid-noughties, she's been a member of the indie electro group New Young Pony Club and formed a duo with J.B. Dunkel of the French group Air called Tomorrow's World. Now she's just released her debut solo album, Private Sunshine, a selection of fun 80s-inspired pop. When this record landed in our inbox, we were struck not just by the summary soundtrack, but also by the vivid album cover created by French-Japanese graphic designer and uh, director Alice Kunisue, who has also collaborated with Hater on her music videos. In fashion, Lou Hater is a regular DJ for brands like Chanel and Miu Miu and was the music director for the British Fashion Awards, so image has always been on her radar. The front cover of her new album is a collage featuring Hater on a stylish platform in front of an idyllic stretch of water, some snow-capped mountains and standing next to a tall glass of milk. Lou Hater and Alice Cunissier discuss their individual inspirations and how they came together to create these striking images. I wanted the visuals to reflect the music as much as possible. So on this album, I've started sampling quite a lot, which I haven't done before. And I felt like the kind of collage aspect of the sleeves kind of reflected the process that I used to make the record. And I, I'm really influenced by John Paul Goode and all the sort of Grace Jones sleeves. That to me, that's like the height of where kind of visuals and music collide. But I love Helmut Newton, I love Guy Bourdin, so that was my kind of mood board. And then when I worked with Alice, I kind of loved her aesthetic already and then sort of showed her the, the styles that I like and, we, and she put the two together. So I think Lou, she saw some videos that I made for Victor Lehmann and it's uh, like short videos of collage that are in movement and it was kind of close to what she had in mind and what she likes in general, which is very 80s and it's similar to what her music sounds like. It's always uh, Lou surrounded by collage elements, so it's... It makes it a bit surrealist. So there's uh, there's some animals, <laughs> there's a black panther, there's uh, mountains. I like I really like using landscapes elements and usually for collage I have like a uh, tons of books, uh, books from the nineties that are kind of the ancestors of Shutterstock. So tons and tons of icons and little photos that you can you can use for free and I think that's what they used in the 90s. 
it's kind of like a sort of surrealist sort of almost pop art collage and then I'm inside the collage as part of it and it's there's lots of bright colors and there are things like there's a panther in one a car in one kind of music that I love at the moment is uh, lots of like LA sounding yacht rock and I think it has such a nice warmth to it and I was trying to sort of channel that into the record. The really common references were, you know, Hypnosis, uh, it's a collective of designers um, who did a lot of album cover in the 60s and 70s. Like uh, they made iconic album covers like Pink Floyd, uh, Electric Light Orchestra and things like that. That's kind of where our meeting point also because um, there's something kind of very chic but also quirky and playful to it. Uh, playfulness, I, it's kind of, uh, it should be entertaining and, and uh, give a sense of light-heartedness <laughs> and I, I felt that in her music as well. My first impression was I really liked the sound of it, like the way it's produced and uh, yeah there's something um, very retro and kind of comforting about the sound even if it's dancey and it's pop and everything there's in the sonority there's something very retro and nice to listen to. That was the singer Lou Hayter and designer Alice Cunissier. Lou's album, Private Sunshine, which you just heard some tracks from, is out now. We started today's programme by talking about materials and we're going to finish with something tactile too. Our final thought this month goes to British writer Fleur MacDonald. She talks about the emotional importance of an inherited object. In this case, a pair of shoes that used to belong to her grandmother. It must have been just after the war, and it was late. My grandmother was trying to hail a taxi. She had moved to Paris from a small town in Brittany near the sea, and she didn't like travelling home alone after work. It was snowing. A car pulled up beside her and offered her a lift. My grandfather later said he had stopped because he liked her silhouette. I'm not sure what they said to one another in the car. Over the following 40 years of marriage, they never found that they had much in common, apart from perhaps a love of golf. But my grandmother never stopped looking after her silhouette. For her, that did not mean dieting. People from Brittany can never give up butter. But caring for her coat, her posture and, of course, the right pair of shoes. I inherited a few of them, although inherited is perhaps not the word. I still have a pair of Celine shoes that I found in her wardrobe almost 20 years ago. They were too small for my mother, and I took them before any of her other granddaughters could lay claim to them. They are evening shoes, mid-high heels, black suede, 
with a fabric detail on a gently pointed toe. Elegant but understated. Whenever I look at them, I think of her, and I think of that moment that my grandfather, a flashy banker, decided to give a pretty girl a lift. She wasn't the last. Marriage never stopped him from offering lifts to other women. In all honesty, that memory makes no sense. She couldn't have worn them that night. Only after they were married could she afford made-to-measure shoes, bags and mink. They also make me think of a black-and-white photograph in one of my mother's albums, where my grandmother is looking at the camera, sporting half a smile and an impeccable blow-dry. It's a party. She's wearing a black shift dress and pearls. Under the table, I like to imagine, she could have been wearing those shoes. I never knew her when she was that young. The photo must have been taken when my mother was still a child. But it's still how I remember her when I slip on her shoes. As I put them back into their box, I think of how they were stored at the back of the wardrobe in her flat in the 16th arrondissement for years. They must have been there when my grandfather had a heart attack. They must have been there when my uncle threw a crystal glass at the wall when he was angry about something. They were there when she fell ill with dementia and started talking to the television as if the game show contestants were me. Inherited possessions become charged with meaning, often far more meaning than the original owner could ever imagine. Those shoes serve as a symbol of my relationship with my grandmother. I'll pass them on to my daughter, but she'll never really understand the stories, images and moments that they evoke. When I look at those shoes, I think of a woman who likes langoustine, golf and trashy thrillers and must have leant more on one hip as the right heel is more worn than the left. They are now sitting, dejectedly, I imagine, in my cupboard, waiting impatiently for the moment when I take them to the cobblers. They still bear the marks of a party, stains from a dawn-lit dewy lawn and scuffs from the pebbles on the drive. I feel guilty. My grandmother kept her possessions in pristine condition. They were companions for life. It's partly a generational change. We've become far more used to fast fashion, to cheap clothes that you can throw away after one event, or even one photograph. Fashion moves in cycles, though, and I think that this type of attitude is slowly changing. We're realizing that there's meditative power in patching up a sweater. The repetitive motion of darning gives your thoughts space. It also offers reassurance on a more metaphorical level. In spite of wear and tear, things are still worth looking after, worth keeping and treasuring. The prospect of welcoming a new witness in your life makes the moment of purchase more pleasurable. When I want to justify buying an expensive pair of shoes, I consider them an investment. But not really as an investment for me, not in terms of occasion or cost per wear. I think about who might wear them after me. If it's not my daughter, it'll be my niece. And hopefully she will think of that flicker of time during a pandemic when lockdown was briefly lifted and I wore my cowboy boots and posed for the camera in the pink lavatories at the Ritz.
My gosh, those shoes feel like they've taken on a personality of their own. They're speaking to us. Oh, it just is proof that an object isn't just an object, is it? There's so much meaning. Or it sort of reminds me, I inherited this kind of bag from my mum. It was very simple, but it was kind of bag in the 60s that she would have maybe taken out when she was on the beach. I know she got it in Portugal. Uh, maybe she went out to have ice cream, taking this bag, and it was just uh, embroidered with little lemons and cherries. Very simple. I would keep it to look at because it was so pretty, but I'd never use it. And one day I decided to use it. And I, when I went to pop my sort of lipstick and sunglasses in it, grains of sand fell out. And I would literally was just stopped so emotional. And suddenly I was imagining my sort of 26-year-old mother out in Portugal going out a, 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 of an evening. And it just now, it's just that bag is just so emotional because I think of her and I think of her youth and her past. It's funny, though, Marcella, I mean, actually Fleur in the piece talks about almost justifying expensive and, and wonderful purchases for oneself um, as an investment for future generations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. why not? No, I was, I was thinking, if you know the story, if you have a relationship, if it's your mother, your, your aunt, whatever, so then it's beautiful. Also, if you don't know everything, but I just wondered, I bought lately something on the flea market. And I wonder if I would like to know the story of this jacket I bought, <laughs> you know, mm. you probably, probably you don't want to know it. <laughs> it's a stranger. But you know, if there would have been a camera in this jacket, it could be also the last 40, 50 years. I was wondering who who was wearing this jacket, where, how did it came here to the flea market. I decided probably it's better I don't know it and have my dreams and my fantasies. They are probably better than the reality. <laughs> There's definitely a fine know. line. I mean, it's so funny because she talks about in that piece the dejected shoes. And then you think, gosh, we're really investing these shoes with emotion. And actually, you just, when you take something on from an, certainly an anonymous former owner, you, know, you don't really want to know. But I yeah. suppose there is something so reassuring. I mean, I haven't inherited all that much but I have got a few jackets and off the shoulder tops from my mother and it's funny we have the same shoulders and we have the same frame and so when I wear them now I, I feel like her and that's quite nice <laughs> yeah. in some ways but also a kind of strange feeling in some ways. It's interesting that Flo also talks about fixing and how we're sort of reassessing the value of things that we already own and putting so much more care into things, looking after things, but also restoring things in a kind of mindful way. Well, I think it's the whole thing of that. We're, I think we're all getting very tired of throw away things, throw away culture, throw away objects, disposable um, objects. And, we, you know, we want things that are going to last and going to have stories to carry on with them even are part of you, you know, if you have some jackets, they travel with you everywhere and all the dramas and the beautiful stories with it. So it's kind of part of you, of your story. So you can't just throw it away. A silent diary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't need the camera. We've got the jacket. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Pallet for keeping me company again. Looking forward to having you back in London soon, Gillian, for our next episode. You can buy issue two of Confect now from all good newsstands and confectmagazine.com. While you're on our website, why not sign up to our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips, wine recommendations and recipes. Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello, and Paige Reynolds. 
We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>